Well, I'm <clears throat> delighted to be here this uh, morning with you, and uh, I'm going to be uh, speaking in uh, two voices uh, this morning, uh, which I'm going to try to get rid of the horse one right, right now. Uh, the two voices are my scholarly, a description of my scholarly journey. And the second is a description of my spiritual journey. Now, uh, one of the things I want to contend is that these are intertwined, that they're interlaced, that they're not separable. But uh, they are two... Uh, distinct experiences, and uh, I hope that uh, the ways in which they interact will become clear as I make my presentation this morning. <clears throat> if you have any trouble hearing me, just raise your hand and I'll uh, speak up. Is the uh, mic working okay back there for you? Okay, great. Sorry? Can we get the volume a little stronger in the mic or maybe move it up? underneath the mountain the tide. There you ah, go. There you go. man knows the secret. Great. Heading for uh, the library late one summer afternoon more than uh, 40 years ago when I was a student at Loyola University, which is now Loyola Marymount uh, University in Los Angeles, I noticed a tall Jesuit walking toward me at the same moment, we both glanced up, our eyes met, and I nodded, uh, good afternoon, Father. Good afternoon, he responded as we passed. I suddenly realized I had just met John Courtney Murray. I had seen his picture on the cover of Time magazine. I had struggled through part of his celebrated and demanding book called We Hold These Truths. I was impressed that day by his stately bearing, the liveliness of his eyes, and most of all, by the fact that this brilliant intellectual walking slowly across campus in the late afternoon light was saying the rosary. The old meeting house caught on fire. The spirit was there. Every heart was beating in unison as we turned our minds to God to tell him of our sorrows here below. God saw our need and came to us. I used to wonder what made people shout, but now I, I don't. There is a joy on the inside and it wells up so strong that we can't keep still. It is fire in the bones. Anytime that fire touches a man, he will jump. These are the words of a former slave describing the religious services of his people just after emancipation. I was first arrested by these words 25 years ago when I began to research and write about the religious history of African Americans. The paradoxical conjunction of sorrows here below and joy welling up on the inside puzzled me. Over the years, the image of fire in the bones stuck in my memory and eventually became for me a metaphor of the distinctive character of African-American Christianity, a mood of joyful sorrow, 
sorrowful joy, or more accurately, sorrow merging into joy. The paradox resonated with me, stirring memories of forgotten ancestors whose stories I needed to learn, stories with important lessons, not only for me, but for others as well. What does this fire in the bones have to do with John Courtney Murray? One of the central concerns of Murray's intellectual life was the problem of pluralism. What truths do we Americans hold in common? Upon what basic principles can our nation, made up of people of diverse religious and moral values, reach consensus? In the essays published in that book I found so difficult in my freshman year of college, we hold these truths, Catholic reflections on the American proposition. Murray elegantly argued that such a set of principles, a tradition of rational truth, could be derived from natural law. Taking up Murray's interest in the question of pluralism, an issue even more hotly debated now than in his day, I would like to reflect upon the truths we hold in common from the perspective of African-American Christianity. African-American Christians have been a people excluded for much of their history from full participation in their nation and, in, and their church because of race. The issue of race did not figure in Murray's discussion of American pluralism, nor did he take sufficient account, I think, of the symbolic value of history to bind the people together or conversely to keep them apart beyond allegiance to a set of shared principles, a prime source of identity for a nation, is history construed as a set of interlocking stories that we tell one another about our origins and our past. I mean the mythic history that establishes our sense of national identity, destiny, and purpose. Lincoln's mystic chords of memory. It is important to note that our sense of common history can change over time to accommodate our expanding awareness of the variety of who we are ethnically, racially, and religiously. The expansion of our historical vision usually occurs in response to social pressure from some group whose story has been left out of the national story. This was precisely the impetus for the Black Studies Movement of the late 1960s and early 1970s, the period when I came to intellectual and academic maturity. That cultural movement, mirroring the social and political movement to guarantee civil rights for blacks, effectively demonstrated that African Americans, despite their absence from the dominant academic and popular versions of American history, had been of central importance in the development of the nation. Moreover, the neglect of black history not only distorted American history, but distorted both white and black Americans' perceptions of who they were. For a people to lose their history, to have their story denigrated as insignificant, is a devastating blow, an exclusion tantamount to denying their full humanity. To ignore the history of another people whose fate has been intimately bound up with your own 
is to forego self-understanding. Thus, for many of us, the attempt to recover African-American history had more than academic significance. I felt that in the recovery of the, of the history of my people lay the restoration of my past, myself, my very identity. I was born in 1943 during the Second War in this century to rack the world with death and destruction and untold misery. A war that demonstrated the horrors that doctrines of racial supremacy can affect. I was born into a country and a part of the country burdened by racism and racial oppression. I was born black in the American South in the state of Mississippi. I was born into a family of Indian, French, German, and African ancestry in a small town on the Gulf of Mexico named after a king of France, Bay St. Louis. You may have heard of Bay St. Louis. It was at the height of the storm surge of Katrina. I was born three months after my father was shot and killed by another man, a white man, in Mississippi in 1943. Intending to help develop a new African-American historiography, I chose to write a history of the religious life of slaves in the United States. As I sought sources for my study, I became fascinated by the voices of former slaves preserved in narrative accounts of their lives under slavery, not just as historical evidence, but as voices that seemed to be speaking directly to me. These voices were special. They rang with the authenticity that comes from those who have endured brutal suffering and triumphed over it. In my historical writing, I tried to capture the tenure, tenor excuse me, of these voices, their rhythms, and especially the wisdom that they conveyed. What did they say, these voices of elderly black Americans who had lived part of their lives under slavery and all of their lives under discrimination? They spoke of slavery as a central religious and moral fact in the history of our nation a fact that could not be excused as an exception to the real American story. Their voices contradicted the proposition that America is the story of the gradual expansion of freedom and opportunity to a wider and wider group of people. The national story has to include the ongoing rejection and degradation of others because of race. Those versions of the American story, therefore, that tend to be triumphalistic smug or celebratory, fail the truth. What's more, they are dangerous because they facilitate our tendency to ignore the terrible urgency of those who still live in the long shadow of the plantation, trapped in poverty and despair. The moral claim laid upon us by their ancestors' insistent voices, this continual awareness that racial inequity has been woven into the fabric of our society from the start and is still very much a part of its social and economic pattern. So a historian at Yale wrote a history called Slavery and Freedom, the American Paradox. I was born into a family that was Roman Catholic as far back as we knew. I was baptized in St. Rose de Lima, a black church, and given the name Albert Jordy. 
after my dead father. Thank you. See if I can balance coffee and, and my text. When I was two, my mother, my sisters, and I moved to the north, partly because of what had happened to my father. But we returned during summers to visit relatives down home. One summer down south I remember especially well. Thank you. I remember one Sunday when we had missed mass at St. Rose de Lima, the black church. So we went to the white church, Our Lady of the Gulf, which my grandfather had helped to build. He was a carpenter. We sat in back, I remember, squeezed together in a half pew. I remember going to receive Holy Communion. I remember the priest carrying the host. I remember him passing me by and again passing me by, carrying the host in his hands, passing me by until he had given communion to all the white people. I remember I was seven years old. As I continued to teach and to write about the religious history of African Americans, I encountered time and again the charge that Christianity was a compensatory and otherworldly religion and as such distracted black people from their situation and encouraged them to accept their lot as the will of God. Take this world, but give me Jesus. On the contrary, the voices I heard spoke in the main with righteous anger and prophetic certainty about the destruction awaiting this nation unless it represents unless it repented the evil of racism. Their God was a God of justice, they asserted, the Lord of history who intervened in human affairs to cast down the mighty and uplift the lowly. And a whole cloud of biblical witnesses supported their case, the children of Israel freed from Egyptian bondage, Daniel standing unscathed in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego safe in the fiery furnace, and so on and on down the litany of prophets, apostles, and martyrs whose lineage they claimed as their own. Slavery and racial exclusion contradicted the essence of Christianity. Bear ye one another's burdens. How can the master claim to bear my burdens when he burdens me down with the heavy chain of oppression? demanded a group of slaves in 1774. Any form of Christianity that condones slavery or racial discrimination is to that extent false and will be punished. Ain't everybody talking about heaven gonna go to heaven. Slaveholder holding and segregating Christian, Christians practiced a perversion of Christianity. The segregation of black and white churches signified the existence of two Christianities in this nation, and the deep chasm that divided them demonstrated the failure of the nation's predominant religious institutions, the major sources of its common symbols, images, and values to achieve meaningful, sustained community across racial lines. In my hometown, there was a Roman Catholic seminary. It was founded in 1920 to train black men to be priests because most other seminaries would not accept them. It was named for St. Augustine since he was from Africa. 
my stepfather studied there. He was ordained a priest, but in 1747 he left the priesthood. He left disillusioned and angry because of the racial prejudice he encountered in the church, even among fellow priests. Years later, he would still rage when he remembered the, strong, the, the wrongs done to him and to other black priests within the Catholic Church. Ad introibo ad altari dei ad deum quilatificat juventutum meum. I will go up to the altar of God, to God, the joy of my youth. When I was 10, I became an altar boy. The sound of Latin, the glow of candles, the fragrance of incense, the splendor of the altar, the solemnity of the saints' statues surrounded me with sacred mystery. May processions, benedictions, daily school masses, music, chants, the liturgical seasons, the sacraments, all supported within me a profound sense of the tangible presence of God. Despite my stepfather's experience and my own of racism in the church, I believed, as did he, that the sacraments worked ex opere operato. From the age of 10, I wanted to be a priest. I wanted to stand at the altar and offer God in my hands. So it was that when I came to investigate the religions that enslaved Africans brought to the Americas, I encountered something that seemed very familiar, a correspondence that Africans themselves had discovered centuries ago between their religion and Roman Catholic Christianity. The most obvious of these correspondences was the identification of Catholic saints with African spirits, so characteristic of African-American religions like voodoo and santeria. Though my family has Louisiana roots, none of us, as far as I know, serve the Loire, that is, practice voodoo. No African religion seemed familiar because they shared with Catholicism a sacramental vision of the world in which another world, a spiritual world, co-inheres with this one. Behind its flat surface, our day-to-day -day world opens onto depths full of meaning, pattern, and spiritual presence. Ritual, like a doorway, gives access to the spiritual world. Through ritual, we step into a kingdom of divine light, mystery, and wonder. The material objects of ritual not only symbolize spiritual realities, but make them present. Incense becomes the fragrance of prayer. The light of the candles becomes the flame of devotion. The images of the saints enable the power of ancestors to help the living. Liturgical ritual in African religion, as well as Catholicism, culminates in moments of transparency between the worlds when the divine and human touch and life is transformed. From this perspective, our society in general seems ritually and symbolically impoverished. The national civic myths, symbols and rituals that do exist are weak and shallow sources of identity and community. Societies need ritual to transmit meaning and value from one generation to another. Without effective and affective shared rituals, our sense of community atrophies. We are left with the symbols manufactured by mass culture for ceremonies of common consumption. There were correspondences that obtained between African religions and Protestantism as well, though these were more subtle than those associated with Catholicism. 
in the emotional preaching and ecstatic behavior of Baptist and Methodist revival services. African-American slaves encountered a ritual equivalent to the spirit possession ceremonies of Africa. The crucial factor linking the two traditions was a conviction that authentic worship required an observable experience of the divine presence. It ain't enough to talk about God. You've got to feel him moving on the altar of your heart, as one former slave explained. Ritual in this liturgical perspective is supposed to bring the divine tangibly into this world. The presence of God becomes manifest in the words, the gestures, and the bodies of the believers. Their praying, singing, preaching, and dancing occasion as well as signal the Spirit's arrival. In this form of African and African American ritual, the divine is embodied in the faithful. The emotional ecstasy of black Protestant worship symbolizes a profound religious truth. The preeminent place of God's presence in this world is the person. His altar is the human heart. Moreover, it is the whole person, body, as well as spirit that makes God present. In a society chronically split between body and spirit, African-American ritual exemplifies embodied spirit and inspirited body in gesture, dance, song, and performed word. In worship, the human becomes an icon of God. A radical personal vision of life flows from this liturgical sensibility. Contrary to the depersonalizing pressures of slavery and racial oppression, the person is of ultimate value as image of the divine. Anything that then that defaces that image is sacrilegious. Howard Thurman, uh, one of the characters in my recent books, uh, was raised in part by his grandmother, who had been a former slave. And when she saw Howard and the other children in Daytona Beach, Florida, where he grew up, having their self-image being contradicted by the racism of society, she would gather them together and she would tell them about the old slave preacher who preached to her when she was a child on the plantation with the other slaves. She said he would preach a sermon starting with Genesis and ending with Revelations. By the end of his sermon, he would be drenched in sweat. Tired as he was, he would look at each of the people in his congregation in the face, and he would say to them, you aren't slaves, you aren't niggers, you are children of God. As I wrote and taught about African religions, their transmission and transformation, I realized that they represented a legacy of wisdom about the nature of the world and people in the world from which we all then could benefit. Contemporary perspectives might be complemented and enhanced by the traditions of these ancient societies unknown in, to most of us. In this personalized world of traditional African religion, the self is conceived as relational. Each person is constituted by a web of interpersonal relationships. Our health, our fortunes, our very lives depend upon the state of our relationships, including those who have gone before our ancestors, who continue to figure prominently in the progress of our lives. 
by contrast, the tendency of American culture to overemphasize the individualized self empties life of the communal presence that gives depth and background to our existence. Similarly, a greater appreciation of the self as relational might help us perceive the selfish desire for aggrandizement hiding behind many of our images of success. To achieve at the expense of others from the perspective of traditional African religions is witchcraft, pure and simple. And if you choose to move too far outside or too far above your community, you risk becoming bewitched. In Bay St. Louis, unlike the North, there always seemed to be time and space enough for the long time love. In the evening twilight, we gathered for supper. The table was heavy with food, laughter, and stories. Stories about the old people that went on long into the night until the last warm, sweet sip of anisette placed a benediction on the evening. I heard stories about my great-grandmother who'd been a slave. She had to flee New Orleans with her son, my grandfather, because his father, a merchant mariner, wanted to take the boy with him when he returned to Germany. They remembered my great-grandmother starching and ironing white shirt waists while singing snatches of opera she had heard in New Orleans. Her grandchildren used to laugh behind her back and call her Black Patty after the famous Jubilee singer. There was no rush about them, as with the people up north. They attended great, great carefully to the daily tasks of community, graciousness with others, gentleness, generosity, care, kindness, patience, politeness. These were the virtues of down home. Being known because my grandparents were known, I glimpsed the deep patterns of my people, patterns that healed. These were my people. They had an ease about them that put others at ease, like a warm embrace. Up north, black Catholics were few. I was one of a handful of black students in St. Thomas, the Apostle Catholic Church. I didn't say it, but I felt different, alone, far from my people, far from home. I travel in the low country of Georgia and the South Carolina coastal country, country islands to talk to elderly black Christians about their experience of conversion, about a process called seeking that they underwent many years ago. Led by the spirit into the wilderness to pray, each had a spiritual father or spiritual mother to examine dreams and visions and to serve as a guide in the way of salvation. Now in their 80s and 90s, these are hard-pressed people who've been poor all their lives. They've been through the fire and refined like gold. When they speak about their conversion experiences of 60 and 70 years ago, their faces light up with joy. I ask one 95-year-old man what the difference is between his time and mine Love, he replied. Too much love has gone out of the world. We didn't have nothing, and we helped one another. Now it seems like all everybody is interested in is making the dollar. From black people like these came a music that constitutes one of the nation's most significant contributions to world culture. 
and many around the world have been moved by their songs, songs that transform the particular suffering of one people into a parable of human experience. What is the meaning in all this sorrow? What good is it? Simply this, it must be lived through, it can't be evaded by any of the subterfuges of power or spurious means of escape devised by people to distract one another from reality. Life in a minor key is life as it is, bittersweet, joyful sadness. Unless we are mature enough, realistic enough to accept sorrow, we will never be able to truly laugh, to be genuinely creative, to authentically love. Instead, we will succumb to illusion to becoming preoccupied by an ever-spiraling cycle of needs in a vain attempt to deny suffering and death. We, will, we become bewitched by the illusion that we have no needs that we ourselves can't meet, that we are omnipotent, that we control our own lives. Illusions of power that become dangerous when we try to live them out by controlling others. The spirituals speak of an alternative. They reveal the capability of the human spirit to transcend bitter sorrow and to resist the persistent attempts of evil to strike it down. One Sunday on a very cold December in a very bleak winter, I stood in the front of St. Peter and Paul Orthodox Church in Manville, New Jersey to receive the sacrament of chrismation. The priest anointed my head, my eyes, my nostrils, my ears, my lips, my chest, my hands, and my feet with holy oil and gave me a lit candle to hold as I stood for divine liturgy. Uh, one of the downfalls of being orthodox is that you stand during the entire liturgy. After the anointing, I thought about the last step in the process of icon painting, which is the application of warm oil. The oil serves to bind together the colors of the icon and to bring out their depth. At the beginning of the liturgy, we sing this, the words of Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And I am moved once, to, once again by the sad joyfulness of the chant tones. Once again, I feel the prayers of the congregation as if their hands hold me up. I think back to the night of Pascha, Easter vigil, when we had processed around the church with lit candles and then stood at the doors of the church chanting Christ is risen, trampling down death by death and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. When the doors opened and we all moved into the church, I literally felt the presence of generations of Christians standing with us, generations moving into the church with us, present with us on Pascha our ancestors in the faith. Our nation, too, has ancestors. Now, as much as ever, we stand in need of their presence. We, the American people, need to hear and to listen to the voices of all our forefathers and foremothers. We need to be informed by the memories of their lives. Can these bones live, these dry bones, if we allow them to be re-knit, remembered, in memory, story, and ritual. 
These are all ways of remembering a community broken by rage, injustice, and fear. Not to avenge, not to make up for, not undoing what can't be undone, but perhaps to heal. There are those who fear that the stories won't cohere, that they will remain a disparate set of unrelated or conflict-ridden experiences that only confirm our feelings of divisiveness of us against them. Perhaps, but I am convinced that if we listen, truly listen, something else will happen. We will find ourselves intrigued by the dramas of these stories, moved by their poignancy, and finally surprised at the common humanity that lies beneath their distinctive details. I grew up without knowing the full story of my father's death. My mother and my stepfather decided not to tell me until I started college because they did not want me to grow up hating white people. As a result, I wondered if the story were shameful, otherwise they would have told me. I never knew my father. I had no memories of him. I had no stories of him, only one blurry picture, which I have hung on my ancestor wall. I knew only his absence. Several years ago, I went back to Mississippi in search of my father. I didn't know what I'd find after all the, those years, only that I needed to go. I talked to aunts and uncles, cousins, close family friends. I found two newspaper accounts of my father's death. I spoke of the son, with the son of the man who killed my father. On the last day of my trip, I went to visit my father's grave. I had been there many times before, but for the first time, I suddenly began to cry. I cried for him. I cried for my mother, for my sisters, for a father and a son who never met. Then, as if in memory, I saw him. I saw him laughing. I saw him raging. I saw him shot and falling, falling into my arms, into my life after all those years of waiting, my father and I had finally met. I bent down, picked up some dirt from his grave, and rubbed it on my head. All the sorrows welled up inside and merged with the joy of meeting him, finally, for the first time. 